So good evening everyone. Can you hear me? Is this loud enough? Okay. So yeah, I'm going to give a talk um, exploring the topic of consumerism a bit from a Buddhist point of view. I'd like to start with giving you some statistics, a bit shocking statistics. Apparently in our world, the richest 20% of the population consume 86% of the resources and the poorest 20% of the population consume just 1.3% of the resources. So that's the world we live in, a, a world where there's a quite shocking gap between the rich and the poor, and apparently there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that this gap is getting bigger, not just because um, the rich are getting richer, but also the poor are, are, are getting poorer. There is, there's, more, there's a, a growth of poverty in the world. Another shocking statistic, in our Western world, we spend $435,000 million every year on advertising. And uh, last statistic, um, <clears throat> there's a growing body of research into this whole area of consumerism. And, and one thing it's measured is uh, how pe how, um how happy people rate themselves to be. Yeah, so there's, there's been a survey going on, for example, in America, of how happy people rate themselves to be. And it's been measured since the, world, since the, uh, the last World War, since World War II, people's self-rating of their happiness. Apparently it peaked in 1957. That was when people in American society rated themselves as happiest. Ever since then, it's gone, either gone down slightly or remained roughly constant, yeah, 1957. Consumption has more than doubled since 1957, more than doubled. And um, here's a really interesting one. People's rating of what income they need in order to be happy uh, doubled between 1986 and 1994. So in the space of just less than 10 years, People, what people perceived they needed in order to be able to be happy doubled. Yeah. So that, that was uh, information from America, but apparently it's a very consistent, similar pattern in the UK and in a lot of developed countries, that we have more, that we think we need even more, and we're no happier, and in some cases even less happier. And there's a whole growing area of research into this, research by economists, psychologists and sociologists and people. And, um, yeah, just looking at this question of, well, does consumerism actually produce happiness? Are we building the kind of society where people are actually happier or not? And it, the research, I think, is really interesting. And one of the reasons it's interesting is because, well, it is research. It's an attempt to be objective and to kind of be evidence-based. Yeah? And yeah, as, as I said, there's this remarkably consistent picture emerging that um, up to a certain level, more material security does make a difference. That's clear. Up to a certain level, more material security does produce more happiness. People just feel safer and more secure and so on. But after a certain level, it makes absolutely no difference whatsoever. If anything, the pursuit of more causes more stress and so on and actually decreases happiness. Yeah? So a very, very interesting and consistent picture that you find. 
And yet, my sense of our society is that consumerism is seen as the answer to all our problems. Yeah? I've been thinking that you could see consumerism as the world's most successful religion ever. Yeah? It's like a religion, it's a kind of belief that if we're, only we get this or we get that, then we'll be happy. Yeah? Uh, maybe it's the world's most ever successful religion. It's got the most followers all over the world. It's definitely got the biggest advertising budget. Um, it gets the support of politicians of all parties. They all see, you know, this is the answer. You know, when the, when the recession hit a couple of years ago, Alistair Darling's response was to reduce VAT to get people shopping. That was the response to the financial crisis. That was the solution, apparently. And this, this religion of consumerism has constant media coverage. You know, you read a Sunday newspaper, there's a few pages of news at the front. The rest of it is all about things you can buy. You know, how you can go on holiday, how you can buy a new car, how you can buy this, how you can buy that. There's a vast amount of media coverage. It's actually about shopping and consumerism. So it's very kind of powerful and all-pervasive and, uh, yeah, ubiquitous in our society. So my talk is just a few res- uh, reflections on that, a kind of Buddhist response to that, uh, uh, asking the question, well, do Buddhists buy consumerism? And partly I'm interested in this because I've been, getting, I've been getting interested in the whole area of us as a Buddhist movement and us as Buddhists kind of being out there in society more, having more of a voice in society and trying to be a force for good in the world, trying to kind of speak out on certain issues where we think we've got something to say, where we think that Buddhist values and Buddhist ethics have something to say. And, yeah, I've been kind of reflecting on this area of consumerism because I I kind of suspect it is an area where we've got something to say and, in addition to that, something to offer, something practical to offer. We'll say more about that as we go along. So, yeah, for me, and, well, in our movement, there's always been this emphasis that Buddhism is about transforming ourselves, but it's also about transforming the world. It's not about one or the other. Both are crucial. Both are necessary. Transforming self and transforming the world. And there's a relationship between the two. We do need to transform ourselves. We need to kind of work on ourselves, develop more awareness, more kindness, more confidence and courage and so on. Uh, we need to do that partly so that we can, can be a force for good in the world. So partly so that we've got, we're more able to kind of work in the world and be effective in the world, as it were. So we need to transform ourselves in order to transform the world. But also, in a way, we need to transform the world in order to transform ourselves. We need to kind of create a society which supports spiritual growth. We need a kind of context. You know, we need the world, society as a context for our own practice, to make sure our own practice doesn't just get rather sort of blinkered and insular and so on. So there's a relationship between the idea of transforming self and transforming world. Yeah, I mean, I could unpack that a bit more, but just very briefly, that's a kind of important idea in our movement, I think. Transforming self and transforming world, both supporting each other. So I'm going to, in my talk, I'm basically going to look at six responses to consumerism. And the first three are to do with transforming self. So they're the kind of inner work, if you like. And then the last three points are to do with transforming world. So they're a kind of more outer response to this thing of consumerism. Yeah? So that's the structure of my talk. Six points. First three, transforming self, the inner work, and then the, the latter three, 
transforming the world, the kind of outer work, as it were. So my first point for transforming self is, is probably what you'd expect the Buddhist answer to be, uh, is to practice stillness, simplicity and contentment as a, as a first way with working with this force of consumerism in our society. So as you probably all know, we have the five precepts and the positive counterpart of the, of the third precept is to practice stillness, simplicity and contentment. And recently I've been reflecting on how those three qualities, stillness, simplicity and contentment, aren't just sort of three nice words in that order. There's actually a relationship between them. There's actually a kind of progression from one to the next to the next. So I'll just unpack that a little bit. So first of all, I think we need stillness. First of all, we need to practice stillness. We just need space in our lives. We need quiet in our lives. We need silence, meditation, Time to reflect, time to think, time to sit quietly or go for a walk. Time, basically, where we can kind of get more in touch with our depths, more in touch with not just kind of the surface of our lives, but what really matters to us, what we really care about, what we really feel passionate about, what um, really is important in our lives. So to kind of get down to the depths, as it were. That's not always easy. Sometimes if we're busy and we try and be still, it's quite uncomfortable. It's quite sort of edgy feeling. It takes time to kind of sink down, as it were, and kind of get in touch with those depths. But yes, we need stillness in our lives. We all need stillness in our lives in order to kind of contact what really matters, what really counts, what's really important. And then if we do that, I'm kind of thinking, well, that will lead to simplicity. If we have enough stillness we have enough contact with what's really important, then we try and base our lives more and more around that, more and more around what's really important and meaningful in our lives. Trying not to let the other stuff get in the way, things that distract us, things that's relatively kind of superficial and not really meaningful in a deep way. So in a way, that's how I'm seeing simplicity. It's getting in touch with what you really care about what has meaning for you, and then, as much as possible, trying to base your life around that and not letting yourself be distracted for it. What that is will vary from person to person. So it might be your family is what's really meaningful and important. It might be your friendships. It might be your work is a real vocation for you, and that's what you care passionately about. It might be your spiritual practice. It might be some cause or some passion that you've got, art or poetry or some cause that you really believe in. It might be a mixture of these things, yeah? But it's stillness to find out what matters, simplicity, basing your life around that as much as you possibly can. And then the next stage in the progression is contentment. Stillness, simplicity, contentment. And I've been thinking, in a way, you can't practice contentment. It's more a fruit. It's more that if you have enough stillness in your life, and then you have enough simplicity in your life in the, in the sense of really focusing your life about what matters, then you will experience more and more contentment because you'll be doing something that, that you care about, that you're co- deeply connected to, and that is more sort of emotionally satisfying. So in a way, contentment is a byproduct of stillness and simplicity and of basing your life around what's really meaningful and important. 
So yeah, practicing stillness, simplicity and contentment in that way. Sounds great, doesn't it? In real life, of course, it's all a bit more complicated, um, particularly in our society. How do you practice simplicity in such a complicated, fast-moving, sophisticated, technological society and all that? Um, And in a way, there's not a simple answer. We've all got to find our own answers. All our lives are different. We've got to find our own way, as it were. And I've been thinking, well, the practice, you know, there isn't a set answer, but there's a practice of daring to ask the questions, daring to kind of question ourselves and to keep asking, keep questioning ourselves and keeping those questions alive and open and honest and being prepared to listen to the answer. So questions like, well, what really matters? Given that life is short, given that we're, you know, we're only here for a relatively short period of time, what really matters in your life? What really gives depth, purpose, meaning, beauty and satisfaction and so on? Keep reflecting on that. Keep asking that question and listen to the answer. What do I really need to allow that in my life? And the answer to that will be different for different people. You know, maybe you decide, well, actually, I'm going to spend quite a lot of money going on holiday with my family because I really want to spend some quality time with them and that really matters. And that might be a very good decision for you. Yeah, it's going to vary from person to person. What is it that distracts me from the depths and keeps me wasting time in the shallows? Yeah, I think we could all do with reflecting on that and, and listening to the answer. How can I stop doing that and prevent it from happening? And do I have enough stillness in my life? Do I, do I allow enough time for those depths to emerge? I suspect very few of us do. Yeah, I suspect a lot of us could do with more stillness, more just retreats, uh, going for walks, just sitting doing nothing, being still and quiet. So that's my first little point, practicing stillness, simplicity and contentment and seeing the kind of link, the progression between them. My second point is, um, is basically to enjoy life. Yeah, so slightly different uh, angle here. Um, Sangharachita, who founded our movement, many years ago he used to talk about the, Buddh- the Buddhist spiritual life as the higher hedonism. The higher hedonism. hedonism yeah? so, so a while ago that he talked in these terms... But I suspect he was being a little bit provocative because he realised that a lot of people who come to the spiritual life, they sort of have this view that it's, all, it's about being a bit kind of dour and puritanical. And maybe we sort of, you know, we've kind of imbibed those ideas and then we import it into our Buddhist practice. And by describing Buddhism as the higher hedonism, he was really trying to get across that actually Buddhism is about joy. It's about happiness. It's about... In a way, it's about pleasure. It's about being happier. Yeah? So he was kind of trying to kind of cut against a tendency that maybe um, people had. So I've been thinking, particularly with this topic of consumerism, this is quite important that we remember that. Um, it's very easy to get a bit puritanical about consumerism. So, for example, <coughs> I've got a chap lives over the road from where I live who owns a red Porsche. Yeah. And he's, he's a lovely guy, actually. One day I'm going to give this talk and there's going to be someone in the audience who owns a red Porsche. But, um, 
Hopefully it's not tonight. Uh, anyway, there's a guy over the road from me who owns a red Porsche. It's big. He gets it out every week and he polishes it and he goes for a little kind of drive around the block, as it were. And he obviously really loves it. So he, you could think, well, maybe he's getting a kind of a sense of status and kind of sense of himself from owning a red Porsche. And then I could get into being feeling a bit superior about it because I'm a Buddhist and we don't go in for things like that. And, you know, I could get into feeling a bit superior because I don't own a Porsche or a big car. Do you, do you, do you see what I mean? You can, you kind of, these kind of attitudes um, can start to creep in. And, I, you know, I feel a little bit superior because, you know, it's terribly unecological having a big sports car and, and stuff like that. But what I'm doing is basically I'm doing the same mental state. Yeah, I mean, Buddhist ethics, it's all about the underlying mental state, isn't it? And maybe ethically, karmically, what I'm doing is identical to what they're doing. Yeah, um, Somebody's feeling superior because they've got a big car. I'm feeling superior because I haven't got a car. Yeah, It's, it's the same thing, actually, except that I don't get to drive in a Porsche. Um, so you could say it's worse, yeah? So that's... I think in this topic of consumerism, that's what we've got to really watch out for, is that kind of puritanical attitude. It's actually about the underlying mental state of stillness, simplicity and contentment, and not, you know, you can feel superior for having something, but you can also feel superior because you don't have it, kind of thing. So it's about, yeah, it's about the ethical underlying intention. Recently I was talking to Sadhanandi, who's uh, the chair of Taraloka Women's Retreat Centre, and she was talking about Ratnashuru. Some of you may know her. She's an old lady in her 80s who lives at Taraloka. And Sadhanandi was saying that Ratnashuru loves gadgets. She adores gadgets. She's always on the internet buying gadgets, apparently. So again, you could, you could think, well, that's not very Buddhist. Buddhists shouldn't be on the internet buying gadgets. Um, but why does Ratnashuru love gadgets? Well, the reason is because she's nearly blind. Yeah? So she buys things that allow her to, well, you know, kind of keep her independence going. So apparently she's recently bought some kitchen scales that when you put the flour in the, or the sugar in or whatever, it tells you the weight, it speaks to you. Yeah? So she can still bake because she's got this fancy gadget. Or she's got a keyboard with massive keys so she can still see the keys and type. Yeah. So in other words, she has all these things, but they allow her to retain her independence and kind of live a, a much fuller life than would otherwise be possible. So that's in a way why it's, this is a kind of difficult topic to talk about. Because in a way, we're very, very lucky to live in the society that we live in. We're so lucky where we, we do live in a culture where there are all these kind of material things available to us that do allow us to live a very kind of comfortable life in, in that kind of way. And the things, you know, the objects, aren't necessarily bad in themselves. Yeah? So that's what we kind of need to remember, I think, that it, about consumerism. It's not the things that, that are a problem necessarily. I mean, some things are bad in themselves, aren't they? Like, you know, cigarettes are just harmful. They're just not a good idea. But a lot of other things that are available in our consumerist culture... There's nothing wrong with them. They're not unethical in themselves. It's more us and our relationship to them which is the issue. Yeah? It's what we it's how we approach them, how we relate to objects, what we're trying to kind of get from them, what we expect from objects that is the issue.
So I've been thinking of this as a spectrum. And at one end of the spectrum, you've got a kind of life of craving. You've got a life where we, we do think, well, if only I had that, then I'd be happy. And then, then I need that, and then I'll be happy. And we're constantly trying to use objects to distract ourselves or to kind of build up a sense of identity or to prop up fragile self-esteem and status and so on. Yeah? So that would be one end of the, 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 the spectrum, using consumer goods and objects and things like that, trying to get happiness through possessing more and more kind of things which in themselves are just insubstantial and ephemeral, as it were. That would be one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is, well, yeah, we have things that we own and we look after them and we appreciate them and we enjoy, enjoy them, yeah? And maybe we look to own things which are beautiful, which are useful, which kind of lend depth and meaning to our lives. So a woman called Vajradarshini gave a talk on the international retreat earlier this year about this and she told the story of, she went to visit her mum who was ill and she got her mum to teach her knitting uh, as a way of spending time together. And so she knitted this tank top, right, that her mum had taught her to knit. And I think she was actually wearing it or she held it up. And it wasn't perfect, it was slightly kind of wonky. Um, but she said, I really love this tank top because, you know, threaded into it, you know, knitted into it, was all those memories and associations of that time with her mother and her mother teaching her to knit, and so on. So she, it's, a, it's a lovely image of how some things have, have much more meaning in them than the thing itself. Yeah? So maybe that's what we should be aiming for as much as possible, is to have those kind of things, things which are kind of beauty, beautiful or meaningful in that kind of way. They've got kind of associations and memories and meanings kind of knitted into them, as it were. Yeah? So maybe, yeah, it's useful to think of that as a kind of spectrum, uh, one end there's a kind of life of craving at the other end there's a life where we enjoy things um, you know we kind of have them but they don't have us as it were and maybe we just need to think well where am I on that spectrum and you know where am I at any given time and which way am I moving and how can I move you know make my life about moving the right way in the spectrum Okay, so my third point under the, the heading of transforming self, the kind of inner work, is to practice individuality. Yeah. So I think one of the problems with responding to consumerism is that it's just so all-pervasive. It's just so uh, ubiquitous, kind of surrounds us on all sides in our culture. And I, I, I imagine, I haven't got children myself, but I imagine for people who've got families it's even kind of stronger that their children are kind of exposed to it, their children kind of get peer pressure from school to have certain things and that translates into pressure on to parents to kind of provide certain things and, um, yeah, buy, buy stuff, basically. So, yeah, there's a kind of, in a way, I think there's a lot of pressure on us through advertising and through just the way our culture is to kind of be part of this and to kind of... Uh, try and have more and more and more. And I think a lot, that's a lot how consumerism works. It, it works through us getting us to make comparisons with each other. One of these uh, little bits of research which I found really interesting was they, apparently in East Germany, they measured people's happiness 
after it unified with West Germany. Yeah. So after unification in East Germany, uh, they got became much wealthier, uh, and they they were less happy. Yeah. More they had more, and they and the levels of happiness went down quite dramatically. And the explanation the researchers came up for why this was happened was basically they were comparing themselves with a different set of people. So before unification, they compared themselves with the Russians or the Hungarians or the Czechoslovakians, other people in the Soviet bloc. And they were kind of doing okay, so they felt okay about themselves. But after unification, they compared themselves with West Germans who were even wealthier, and so they, they became less happy. Yeah. Uh, very, very kind of interesting. And a, a large part of this research into consumerism is it looks into this, about how often when more wealth doesn't produce more happiness, it's because actually everyone else is getting wealthier and therefore, comparatively, people aren't doing better, so they don't feel better. If you see it. it's, it's a lot about comparisons. And, yeah, we, we basically just have a very strong instinctual tendency to compare ourselves with other people. I think we're probably doing it subconsciously all the time. And it's not all negative. Again, I think that's a really important point. You know, comparing ourselves with others is how we build a sense of identity, is how we have a sense of ourselves and our strengths and our weaknesses and so on. Comparing yourself with others might be a really positive thing. You know, I might compare myself with someone and think, God, they're really generous. I could be more generous, couldn't I? And decide to be more generous. So comparisons aren't necessarily a bad thing. They can be very positive. But it's a question of kind of being discriminating about how we compare ourselves and reflecting on how we're comparing ourselves with others. Because, yeah, this this thing of consumerism thrives on, depends on us making those sorts of comparisons. I remember once being in a queue, uh, a long queue in the shop at Christmas, uh, you know, a queue of Christmas shoppers, and I got talking to this woman in front of me, and um, basically she was really stressed. She was quite tense, and um, she just said to me, this is crazy, isn't it? Why, why are we doing this? This is completely mad. And, you know, I just got this sense of this woman rushing like mad to kind of do all these things at Christmas, much more than she thought was really necessary to do, but just feeling she had to do it in order to be a good mother, in order to kind of fulfil the expectations that others had of her. Or maybe they didn't even have them of her, but that she thought people had of her. Do you know what I mean? It was one of those little conversations where the kind of lid comes off something. And, and suddenly she was just saying, this is crazy, isn't it? And then other people in the queue started joining in saying, yeah, this is mad. Why are we doing this? You know, it was, it was one of those little moments of kind of what's going on here kind of thing. And yeah, I just got this sense of us being kind of caught up in something and actually it being quite stressful and difficult for people. Yeah. But it was all kept going because people thought they didn't have any choice because that's what you have to do, because that's what everyone expects. Very, very strong kind of power of expectations and comparisons we make. So again, I don't think there's a simple answer to that. There's not a kind of fixed answer about what we should do, especially in just a short talk like this. But it's about daring to ask the questions, daring to reflect on our lives again, and kind of listening 
to the answers. Yeah, just kind of questions like, well, in what ways do I compare myself to others? Quite a difficult question, that. It needs quite a bit of reflection. How do I compare myself to others? Are there ways I do that which are helpful and ways which are unhelpful? Are there ways I'm comparing myself to others which are, are kind of motivating me in ways which I don't really want, which don't really connect to my deep purpose and meaning in life? Yeah? When do I feel under a pressure to conform? And what's a helpful way to respond to that? So yeah, just being aware of the power of expectations and maybe sometimes we need to be more prepared to take a stand, uh, to make a change and not just go along with expectations uh, and forget about comparisons in that kind of way. So that's my three points under the heading of transforming self, the inner work. Um, (coughs) Practicing stillness, simplicity and contentment. Avoiding puritanism and, 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 and going for kind of joy and happiness and trying to be individual, looking at expectations. So now I've got three points under the heading of transforming world, the kind of outer work, and I'm going to make these a lot quicker, so they're going to be shorter. So my first point is to consume as ethically as possible. Yeah, so we all need to consume a certain amount of stuff. Um, So let's just try and do that as ethically as possible. So uh, switching to an ethical bank, buying fair trade food as much as possible, (coughs) pardon me, and supporting organisations that do work on development issues. For example, Karen, our trust, which is our own movement's kind of development uh, charity. But there's loads of other charities as well, isn't there, like the World Development Movement and so on. So kind of, yeah maybe giving some money to those kind of organisations and consuming as ethically as possible. And thinking about vegetarianism and veganism, yeah? So I don't want to go into the detail of this now because there's no time, but basically if one wants to consume ethically and if one wants to reduce one's carbon footprint, apparently by far the biggest single thing you can do is to become vegetarian or vegan, yeah? Because basically... uh, Meat eating is, uh, is another link in the food chain and it, it um, uses considerably more resources and has a considerably bigger uh, carbon footprint and impact on the ecosystem. As, as, oh, it's, uh, it's quite a significant difference that it makes. So there's a very, very strong case for being vegetarian from that ethical point of view, quite apart from the kind of thing of uh, suffering of animals and so on. And apparently, uh, so that apparently, you know, that like meat eating down to vegetarianism, there's a kind of big reduction in impact. And there's a kind of nearly equal reduction in impact going from vegetarianism to veganism. Yeah, so again, that cr- uh, uses even less resources and has even less impact. So, yeah, I just wanted to encourage you, if you're not vegetarian, to really strongly think about being vegetarian. If you are vegetarian, to think about being vegan. Um, or to think about being more vegan or more vegetarian. Yeah? So I'm vegetarian, I'm trying to be vegan, I'm not there yet, um, but I'm definitely moving in that di- direction. And I'm so, I sort of feel happy about that. I'm just kind of doing my best, I'm kind of trying. Um, I sometimes describe myself as the world's worst vegan, um, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm definitely kind of making an effort to get there. And um, so, yeah, just kind of, 
yeah, I'd like to encourage you to think about moving in that direction and doing what you can to move in that direction, even if you can't do it completely. You know, being being vegan a day a week or two days a week or something like that. Just just moving in, in that kind of skillful, ethical direction. So yeah, consuming as ethically as possible. Point number two, talk to your children about consumerism. Yes, I don't know if anyone here has got children, but um, they're learning their values <coughs> largely from their parents. Um, so they'll copy what you do, yeah? unconsciously or not they're kind of modeling themselves on what you do so yeah be aware of that be aware that your parent uh, your children are uh, going to kind of imbibe your values from you and not just from what you say but also from what you do from from how you live your life yeah and that's going to be the same in relation to consumerism as well so maybe talk to them about all these kind of issues these social issues and consumerism Maybe you can make that fun. Maybe you can, you know, when you're in a car with them, point out adverts and talk about adverts and the tricks that adverts play and kind of make it into a bit of a kind of game, as it were. Uh, Maybe you can compare notes with other parents, particularly Buddhist parents. Um, Maybe you can talk to your children about the things that they plead with you to buy for them. And of course you've got to be aware that they will be under a lot of peer pressure. So you've got to empathise with them with that and... Well, just understand that and be be human about that. But at the same time, I think you can just explore it with them and talk to them about it. Yeah. So just be aware that the TV and the internet will be socialising your children, be having a very strong socialising effect. It's interesting, in Scandinavian countries, advertising is banned for products for children. I think it's under 12 or maybe it's 16 but you can't advertise products aimed at children. Uh, Whereas in our culture, there's a lot of this socialisation that's going on. But you have a big influence as well. Yeah. So they probably won't thank you in the short term, but just remember, long term they will thank you because they will be happier. That's The evidence is there. Yeah, that if they don't get so much into consumerism, if, you know, as they grow up, they kind of realise they're not so much into consumerism, actually they will be happier and they will thank you for it longer term. So that's my second point. Talk to your children about consumerism. Third point, a bit more broad and general, um, it's about us trying to speak out from a Dharmic perspective. So, yeah, in a way I mentioned this at the, at the start, just us having much more emphasis and much more confidence in speaking out in a way, critiquing our society from a Buddhist point of view and trying to kind of um, communicate Buddhist values and Buddhist ethics and how those values and ethics speak to the kind of issues of the day and uh, could inform the issues of the day and could inform the kind of debate about what a good society really is. Because, yeah, in our society, the current answer is that economic growth and consumerism is the answer to everything. And that's so kind of strong that it can seem like there's no alternative. But that, that's not true, that there are alternatives, there are different ways of living one's life. And, you know, we've got a lot to say about that. So, yeah, I, I'd like us as a, to see us as Buddhists, as a community, just having a stronger voice and, you know, being more confident and having a say in kind of debates and discussions in our society.
So that's my talk, really, my little talk on consumerism and a Buddhist uh, take on it. Um, it's a really hot topic in our society. Uh, I think partly it's a hot topic because it links in with all sorts of other issues. Uh, consumerism links into the whole thing about globalisation and global justice and the kind of world that we're creating through the drive for more and more consumption. It links into the whole kind of ecological thing and you know all, all the kind of growing evidence about the impact of consumption on ecosystems and so on. It links into the whole financial crisis and all the stuff that's going on at the moment around that, which was basically, you know, the way that all kicked off was through, through the greed of financial institutions, and that was driven by people wanting more, wanting to consume more, wanting more status, and so on. Uh, and it also links into this growing body of research about how, although we get materially richer, we don't seem to be getting any happier as a society or as individuals in that happy in, in that society. So yeah, it raises quite fundamental questions about the nature of our society. And it's an area I think where Buddhists have got something to say. We've got ideas and we've got principles about where true happiness and true meaning in life lies and in and what a good society how a good society could kind of support that more. And also we've got tools, we've got practices, meditation, awareness, ethics, stillness, simplicity and contentment and so on. We've actually got the tools and practices to help people change their lives and live a life which is less dependent on consumerism. So yeah, we've got ideas, we've got values, we've got tools and practices to offer. And yeah, this is really an area where Buddhism could be uh, a force for good in the world. Thank you. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, this book's been out a while, so maybe some of you already know about it or maybe even read it, but um, it's going to be on sale downstairs. I'll sign a copy if you like, so it's just another opportunity to get it if you've not got it yet. And it's called The Tree Ratna Story, and it's our story. It's the story of this particular Buddhist movement. And I was actually commissioned to write it by the European Chairs Assembly. So this collective of chair men and women from centres all over Europe. They wanted us to tell our story. Partly because they were, they were aware that there was kind of criticism, you know, quite strong criticism of Tree Ratna on the internet. And they wanted to sort of put the other side of the story, as it were, and put that stuff in a bigger context, but partly also because we hadn't done very much to tell our story for quite a long time, probably since the mid-90s. And since then, the movement's just been growing, spreading out across the world, and in a way getting bigger and broader, and in some ways a bit more, a bit more complicated, a bit more diverse, more harder to kind of tell the story, because it wasn't just a kind of simple story of a little community anymore. So it just seemed like it was well past time to try and draw things together and sort of take stock and, and attempt to tell the story again. And I got the job. Uh, and I must say it was a real honour and uh, I really enjoyed doing it. It had its challenges as well. But this is the product. And I wanted to, I, and what I wanted to do was, when I kind of started thinking about it, I thought, well, actually, it's an extraordinary story. It is an extraordinary story. And, you know, this guy having this vision 
starting some, you know, Sangharachita, starting some classes in a little tiny basement room. Apparently it was about three metres square, the room, or four metres square, tiny little room in a basement in London, starting these classes. And then 40-something years later, you've got this movement, which is all over the world, with over 100 centres. I mean, it's, it is an extraordinary story. So I wanted to tell that story and sort of get that across. And I wanted it to be a story that people wanted to read and get to the end. And I'm pleased to say, I've, that's the feedback that I've had, that people say it's, it's a page-turner, uh, which is, that's what I wanted to do. So I'm really pleased about that. And, yeah, it's, hopefully it's inspiring, and hopefully it's also just, it is just honest and open, and it does go into the kind of difficulties and controversies and mistakes, but it also celebrates the extraordinary achievement that, that is the Tree Ratna Buddhist community. So I did a launch in Glasgow a week ago and gave my talk, and the guy that was chairing it, he said, look, that's not how you do a book launch. You have to read a bit of your book. That's what happens at a book launch. The author reads from the book, which I didn't know because I'm, I'm not really a proper author, he says. So anyway, <laughs> I'll read you a, little book, a, little, a couple of little excerpts, and then that'll be that. Yeah. <clears throat> so here we go. It's a story of sheer audacity. A Buddhist teacher starting from scratch, working with a group of young people who had only the vaguest ideas about the Dharma. He told them they were going to bring Buddhism to the West in a way that had never been attempted before. It's the story of a circle of friends dreaming a dream and working to make it a reality. They were, by necessity, finding out what it was they were trying to do as they went along. It's the nitty-gritty story of how a community evolves. It's a tale of idealism and naivety, growth and growing pains, hard work and burnout, friendship and fallout. It's a celebration of how so much was achieved in so short a time and a reflection on the mistakes made and the lessons learnt. And then a little bit from the end. Currently the world can feel unsafe, threatened by global warming, the war against terrorism or economic meltdown. It can seem like the human race is confronted by a stark choice between the forces of materialistic consumerism and religious fundamentalism. Buddhism has a vision of human life that would lend the material success of the West more depth and meaning. It upholds ethics and values without resorting to religious dogma. It has much to offer the modern world. In the heady early days, people thought the FWBO was going to change the world. Of course it was naive, but what's the point of exchanging that belief for a cynical conviction that we can't change anything? We all create the world we live in through our actions. It always hangs in the balance. On one side are those actions which arise from greed, hatred and unawareness. On the other side are those arising out of generosity, love and wisdom. A community of people working in harmony and inspired by a common vision, can add significantly to the positive side of the scale. This has been the story of the generosity, idealism, courage and mistakes of the many pioneers who created Tri Ratna. You learn what it is you're trying to do in the process of trying to do it. Much has been learnt in the first 40 years. Now it's up to us what we make of it. (laughs) 